I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, literary director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. In this episode, one of our finest journalists, National Book Award winner George Packer, joins Pulitzer Prize winning author Liaquat Ahmed for a wide-ranging conversation about the troubled state of America today, how we got here, and where we might be headed. Hi, everyone. My name is Liaquat Ahmed. I'm one of the board members of the Sun Valley Writers' Conference. Today, my guest is George Packer, one of the preeminent long-form journalists in America today. His last three books have all tried to grapple with big issues. The Assassin's Gate, about the 2003 invasion of Iraq. The Unwinding, about the transformation of America from 1978 to 2012. And most recently, Our Man, biography of the larger-than-life American diplomat, Richard Holbrook, uh, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer in 2020. So it's wonderful to have George Packer to join us. Um, hi, George. Hey, Liaka. How are you doing? Hanging in there. How are you faring under the lockdown? We're trying to come up with schedules for the kids. They keep melting like snow in May. Uh, and so I'm, I'm finding schedules are uh, vital and ephemeral. <laughs> <laughs> bring, out, bring out the teacher in you. Yeah, the coach, the drill sergeant, whatever it takes. But then you got to be sweet and understanding because it's really hard on them. So it's a, it's a balance that I haven't always achieved. So uh, diving straight in, you recently wrote a piece for The Atlantic, uh, the title of which says it all, we are living in a failed state. Um, how did you come to write that piece? 
Well, the title was the magazine's, not mine, but it was right. drawing on a phrase in the piece. And that phrase, which I think the sentence was something like, every morning in the endless month of March, Americans woke up to find themselves citizens of a failed state. And what I meant was during those weeks in March, and really it's continued to now, we had no clear guidance from the national authorities. We had no instructions. Everyone in early March was trying to make their own decision. Do I go to work? Do I send my kids to school? Do I get on the subway? Do I meet a friend for coffee? Without any um, guidance at all coming from the experts or the political authorities. And it wasn't just that they weren't telling us what to do to stay safe. It, it was as if they didn't care. We were on our own. And it reminded me, Liakad, of countries I've reported from, Iraq, Sierra Leone, Ivory Coast, Somalia, where citizens didn't expect the government to care about them, to have their best interests at heart, or to be there to, to give them safety and, and a good life. Obviously, we're not a failed state in the textbook sense. We still have... Uh, a functioning government, functioning police. There isn't massive outbreaks of violence all over the country. But we are, and the coronavirus has woken us up to this, a country with weak systems of government, weak bonds between government and the public and between members of the public themselves that the virus exploited. We, it turns out we are not a thriving, healthy, um, superpower that knows how to handle um, a crisis like this. It laid us flat and it's still not laying us flat because our, I think the fundamental problem is we have no trust between government and the public, especially national government. And we have a leader at the top who is utterly in incapable and maybe even indifferent uh, to, to handle this uh, crisis on this scale. So, is there, I mean, is there any source, anything about what, what has happened that is a source of optimism? I don't know, the role of governors, the role of mayors, uh, the way that the health system has coped with the, with the burdens placed on it. Well, I mean, the first bright spot is the incredible, just amazing dedication and courage and sacrifice of American people, whether they're doctors and nurses and hospital workers, or whether they're factory warehouse workers, delivery people, grocery clerks, who, whether they want to or not, are coming to work every day because the rest of us depend on them. So one thing we've learned is who we depend on, who keeps us alive, uh, like an Amazon warehouse worker, or the person on the other side of the register at the supermarket. Um, that has been a really vital uh, awakening for me that we now have, we, we are made to think about the connections between us and our fellow citizens and fellow people in this country. Um, and to see them as really everyday heroes in many cases. And there've been bright lights among our elected officials here in New York. Andrew Cuomo, after a slow start, has really risen to the occasion and given great both, uh, information facts and also empathy and comfort to people in New York, and I think people around the country. 
Um, so it's not as though everyone has fallen flat, but the key people, I mean, this is something states cannot do by themselves. They're trying because they've been sort of orphaned by the national government, but we are a, a big, advanced, complex, modern country where viruses don't stop at the state line. And we have had an utter vacuum where the federal government should be. And I think for a lot of Americans, it's been a shock. Like we didn't understand quite how uh, weak that system had become so that when it was really tested, it just couldn't answer. So the themes in the article hark back uh, to much, uh, many of the themes you were writing about in your wonderful book, uh, The Unwinding, which won the 2013 National Book Award for Nonfiction. Um, will you be, when you look back at that book, do you think of yourself that, God, you were remarkably prescient? A lot of people are telling me that. Um, I wasn't, I'm not a soothsayer. I hate predicting the future. I hate questions that sometimes come to me to predict the future because I'm a writer and a journalist and what I do is observe and think about what I see and hear. That the key to that book was to leave my bubble in New York around the time of the financial crisis and the Great Recession and go to places around the country that um, journalists tend to not go to, like Western North Carolina, the tobacco and textile part of North Carolina, uh, the exurbs around Tampa Bay, Youngstown, Ohio, in the Rust Belt, and to really spend enough time with a few people. And in each place, I, I found one person who became um, kind of my, my Dante, um, or rather my Virgil, to, uh, to that particular level of heaven or hell, and, um, and listen and see how they're living. And what I found was recurring themes of a sense of abandonment by big institutions, by the institutions that used to kind of be the lifeline of the middle class, state, local, federal government, companies, banks, churches, newspapers, schools, all those institutions that are the mainstay of a, a prosperous middle-class society seemed to be missing from the lives of the people I was with. They had a sense that the middle-class in their community had died. You were either up and out or you were sinking. And that the game had somehow become rigged by the big boys and the big girls in Washington, New York, uh, Silicon Valley to their own benefit, not to the greater benefit of everyone. So that it was a kind of a, a fixed deal that you were going to get screwed and that your children were not going to live as well as even as you live. This was not something that I had to dig hard to find. It wasn't revelatory from them. It, this was how life had become. And all I really had to do was go out and listen. So the, the unwinding owes whatever prescience it has to the people who spoke uh, at great length and, and openness to me about their lives. And um, I think I was seeing things that maybe some other writers or journalists hadn't seen because they were more focused as journalists tend to be on their own bubble, whether it's politics or business or technology and to think things were actually getting better because for educated people with 
professional jobs, things have been getting better for the most part, uh, but not for the people in those places that I went to. So this sort of erosion in, um, in the quality of our lives, was that self-inflicted? Or, you know, could we have done something about it? Or, you know, what caused it? I think it has been self-inflicted. I, I've been reading a lot of uh, Lincoln speeches lately. And um, there's one he gave very early in his career uh, when he was a, just like a 30-something state legislator in Illinois. And he said, we will either live forever as a republic of free men or die by suicide. In other words, we can't be conquered from outside. It's not going to be some Napoleon crossing the ocean to put us in chains. If, if we don't last, it'll be by our own hand. Um, prophetic words from Lincoln, 20 years before the Civil War. And I feel as if we're in a slow motion uh, state of, I don't want to say suicide, but certainly self-harm. We've been harming ourselves for a while. We've allowed things to decline, whether it's um, the, 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 the sense among citizens that they have a stake in their government, that they have a connection, a voice that's heard, um, and that their vote counts. We've allowed our economy to decline so that it really works better and better for fewer and fewer people, um, and that the levels of income inequality are now as greater, greater than they, as they were in the 1920s. Um, we've allowed maybe our education, our standards of education to slip. I feel as if each part of our society, each little interest group, including my own, um, has lost touch with the others and stopped thinking about a national interest or a national narrative that we're all part of and instead is looking out for its own narrow one and maybe nowhere greater than in in politics where partisanship is at such high levels that some sociologists are comparing it to the 1850s the years just before the, the civil war so i think this is obviously there are other things out of our control that are bigger than any person or country, globalization and trade and tech, not technological change and the rise of artificial intelligence. All these things were pressures that were gonna begin to pull apart some of the connecting bonds of the post-war middle-class American dream. Um, but we have not done much to resist them or to try to keep those bonds from being ripped apart. In fact, in many ways, we've done a lot of the ripping apart ourselves. So it, it does feel to me largely like uh, a, a long, massive case of national self-harm. Now, the, the, the sort of corollary of the, this sort of domestic arc that you described, the, the arc of uh, the domestic decline in the quality of our lives, is somewhat matched by uh, a similar arc in our position in the world. Um, and, yes. uh, you know, you, you did a wonderful job in your most recent book, Our Man, um, in depicting the arc of American power through the life of Richard Holbrook. Um, and, you know, taking it from, uh, from the 
the pinnacle when we were at the top of the uh, the heat just after the Cold War, um, and his, um, uh, you know, his great achievement uh, in bringing peace to the Balkans. Um, and then finally, the, you know, his last few years as trying to do a similar thing in Afghanistan and not succeeding. Uh, what, what were you trying to do in that, in that, in, in, in comparing him to sort of the, the fall of America? The, yeah, the story really begins in 1941, the year he was born, which is the year Henry Luce of Time magazine used the phrase the American century, and the year we entered World War II, which I think is the point at which we became a global power like few others, and we're well on our way to becoming a global power like no other. So in a way, uh, Holbrook's <laughs> birth and death spanned this short American century, um, which had uh, several pinnacles maybe, or high points. One was just after World War II, when we created the architecture of the post-war world, the UN, NATO, um, the IMF, etc. Um, a second came that in the post-Cold War, when, as you pointed out, we were the only superpower left standing and seemed able to do what we wanted. And that was when Holbrook came into his own as a mere assistant secretary of state, became you know, sort of the leading foreign policy figure in the Clinton administration and negotiated the end of this terrible war in the heart of Europe, in the Balkans. Um, Holbrook was a complete creature of that period. He didn't know any other America and any other way to think about America, except as an indispensable country that had to lead or no one else would, and problems would fester and grow worse, and humanitarian disasters would spread, and eventually they would become our problem. So we should be there early, not necessarily with military force, but with all our, the tools available to us, the many tools. So that was his DNA. And by the end of his life, which ended in 2010, literally sitting in the office of Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, uh, the office he'd always wanted to occupy and had never quite reached. He had a, an aortic dissection, his aorta tore, and that was really the end of his life. By then, he had begun to realize with a lot of pain that we no longer had that confidence. We no longer had the trust of the rest of the world. We had made mistakes. These were also self-inflicted. The war in Iraq maybe being the the biggest one of all, which Holbrook had a kind of peripheral role in supporting. Um, he knew that we had wasted a lot of our prestige and, and, and power. He didn't think it was over because I don't think he could imagine it being over. What, would it, what else would there be? Uh, but he realized that we, um, that, that we, he, he just felt in some, almost like a, a nervous system way that we no longer had the ability and the confidence to lead the world in a positive way. And I think it's only grown more dire 
in the decades since Holbrook died. You, you do a wonderful job of, you know, of describing how he personified a certain ideal of America. And, you know, there was the ambitiousness, the forcefulness, the confidence, but there was also a certain generosity of spirit. Why has that gone? I think you're right that Holbrook, as ambitious and wildly egotistical as he was, um, and I don't spare that portrait at all, really did care about the world and especially about people who were suffering or in desperate circumstances, whether it was Bosnians under siege in Sarajevo um, or whether it was Pakistani refugees at, during the catastrophic floods of 2010 um, or Southeast Asian boat people, Cambodian refugees. Th these issues really mattered to him. And there's a lot of reasons why that impulse seems to have ebbed. I wouldn't say it's dead. I think there's still a lot of Americans who care about the world. But as a country, um, we, well, we've chosen a president whose attitude toward the world is the exact opposite of Holbrooks in every way, who, um, believes that the world is a competitor that we need to defeat, none more so than our democratic allies, that everything is a, in some ways a, a contest on The Apprentice, and some countries lose and some win, and we want to be the winners, and we are not all in it together, and there is no cooperation or mutual benefit to be had. Um, that's the opposite of the Holbrook view and the opposite, I think, of what animated a lot of American foreign policy um, since World War II. So, um, and maybe Hol the Holbrooks of the world might bear a bit of blame. They may have expected too much of the American people. They may have asked too much of uh, families to send their sons and daughters to wars that were not well understood or well explained. Um, and uh, there, there, there may be some backlash against a political class that didn't seem to be bearing the burden but only asking for the sacrifice. So I think that too accounts to some extent for how Trump could come in um, with a message that said, why the hell should we? What's in it for us? It's a powerful message coming after the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Even though you write nonfiction, you borrow a lot of techniques from fiction. I mean, the first few pages or the first few uh, lines of, of Our Man sort of reminds me of a Graham Greene novel. Uh, you know, maybe the, um, uh, the, the Quiet American or something. And, you know, even in The Unwinding, you say that um, the book owes, a, a, The Unwinding owed a great literary debt to John Dos Passos. Uh, talk a little bit about the way you draw on novelistic techniques in your nonfiction. Well, I I am a failed novelist. Um, I I wrote two novels in my twenties and thirties that did okay. My mother and maybe fifty other people read them. Um, it turned out that fiction was not my natural grain. I was fighting myself 
in some way. But I learned a lot writing those books. And I've always been a, a passionate reader of fiction from a pretty young age up till now. Um, and my ideal of nonfiction is the novel. So when I was in Iraq in 2003, at the start of the war, I remember thinking, you know, looking at all these different characters, American soldiers, Shia clerics, young secular Iraqi computer engineers, um, Paul Bremer. And I thought, you know, Tolstoy would love it here. He, he would write a massive novel about this war because you would be able to see the war and the human experience by following maybe eight, 10 of these people and how their lives cross and how they see the same event from different points of view. So obviously that's not uh, a bar I'm gonna clear, but I, I wrote The Assassin's Gate with the thought that what I want is to bring these characters to life. How do you do that? You do it with dialogue, you do it with physical description, you do it with um, intense uh, psychological analysis and with an account of their background that brings texture and, and en enriches the portrait of them. Um, and when I got to writing The Unwinding, I had a bit of a problem, which was there was no Iraq war that was uniting all these people. I had six or eight characters, but I didn't have uh, a story to unify them. And so I turned to Dos Passos because his great USA trilogy looks at different fictional characters as they make their way through the same history. In that case, the first three decades of the 20th century in America. I tried to do the last two or three decades with these characters going through the same history, but in different places and in different ways. Um, and with our man, you know, the influence I had was not quite green. It was more Conrad. I, I wanted, I wanted Holbrook to be like this uh, Lord Jim Kurtz, <laughs> uh, figure who is being looked at by someone who knew him and who's narrating the story like a yarn, like Marlowe. Conrad's narrator, sitting on the deck of a boat, telling a tale. And I wanted to give the reader the feel that you're hearing the tale of this outsized man who lived through so much history, but you're hearing it personally, directly. So there's a lot of you as if I'm speaking to the reader face to face. All of those are ways of making history and journalism. Um, come alive on the page and to make it as indelible as possible so that the reader actually feels as if they're living through the experience that's being narrated, as well as being given a somewhat removed objective view of it so that they can use their own analytical powers. But mostly I just want them to keep turning the pages. That's the writer's uh, most important job. I mean, what I loved about Our Man was that it's not often you get a biography of a major contemporary political figure that has such an interior element. 
that you really got inside his head. And, and that was hard because Holbrook didn't look at himself. He, he did not have that ability to peel away his own layers and see what was happening at the core of him. I asked many of his friends, what was his inner life like? Did you have any access to it? None of them could really give it to me. So what I had to do was dramatize him through scenes that I picked up through hundreds of interviews, um, through his letters. I have these long passages where I let him narrate his own story by stitching together from letters or diaries a kind of standalone narrative, one in Vietnam, one in Bosnia, one in Afghanistan, so that he's the one telling you his own story and you really hear his voice. And I think those techniques and others made him, uh, if, if not a transparent man, because you never quite get right inside the, the core of him, but at least someone you can hear and feel and, and, and you can move with the rhythms of his sentences and his, almost his breathing. That's what I wanted to convey. Now, his letters and his diaries, do you think he was sort of self, is there a self-conscious element in them that he, he one day thought that he would be a great man and someone, um, his, his Boswell would be writing, <laughs> would be drawing on these to write a biography of him? Well, he, ab he absolutely thought he would be a great man and wanted to be a great man. And absolutely, those letters and especially the, the late diaries are written or, or recorded for some future reader. Because, for example, he'll spell out people's names or he'll give the full name of someone who he knows, you know, who's his best friend. Um, but who was that future reader? I think it was Holbrook himself. I think he was leaving a record of the key uh, events in his career for his own uses to write a great memoir like George Kennan, one of his heroes, but he didn't live to do it. And thanks to the generosity of his widow, Kati Martin, all those papers came into my hands and I don't know whether Holbrook would have been happy with that or not. Uh, I, I think he would have been very jealous of his own archive, but I had the great luck of being able to take that raw material that he had left behind and use it to write the narrative of his life. Uh, you just had a um, book review in The Atlantic um, on the novelist Robert Stone, um, in which you describe him as trying to wrap his arms around America. Um, and uh, I came to the conclusion that that's actually a brilliant description of you. Uh, the, you know, you, I mean, you, you are motivated by a similar ambition to, uh, to come to grips with America itself, you know, with all its flaws uh, and all its virtues. What, uh, what do you say to that? I don't um, accept the comparison to a, a great novelist like Robert Stone or that type of novelist, because he kind of represented a, a type that might not really be with us anymore. Um, but that does seem to be 
the sum of what I've been doing these last 20 years or so. It but wasn't consciously by, so, right? Not at the start. I mean, my first book was a, a memoir of my years in the Peace Corps in West Africa. Nothing great American story about that. Those two novels, not really in that vein. Then I wrote a book called Blood of the Liberals that came out uh, about 20 years ago. That's a three-generational history of my family, going back to my mother's father, and that tries to tell the story of 100 years of American liberalism through those three generations. And that is the beginning of what you're describing. And then Iraq kind of grabbed me by surprise and consumed me for four or five years and I couldn't think of anything else or write about anything else. And, and then on to the election of Obama and the Great Recession with the unwinding. It wasn't a long-term plan because I think if I had planned out something like that, it would have been a total failure. I find that the best work that I do comes out of some kind of serendipity or stumbling into something or just getting interested in something and then finding that it won't let me go and I need to follow it to the end. But as, you, as I look back and the way you describe it, Liakot, this is all about America and I think that's become my subject and maybe was going to be my subject all along because I, it's, uh, it's irresistible and um, inspiring and frustrating and um, I can't get away from it. And so what are, you, what are you working on now? I'm trying to figure out how to get out of the negative mode I've been in for some time. Um, I've been writing critically and with that recent Atlantic piece you mentioned, harshly about where we are. And I'm, I'm running up against the diminishing returns of that stance and that mode of thinking and writing. And I want to try to figure out a way to write about a way out of this, this dead end we've come to. I don't know quite how to do it. I don't know what form it will take. Those things... Um, as I say, are very hard to plan, but that's my impulse. And I have learned after like 40 years of writing to, to listen to my impulses and to follow them and not to do what I think I'm supposed to do, but rather what I really feel like doing. So can I give you a free piece of advice? Go to Please. California. <laughs> <laughs> that's where I'm from, Liakot, so it means going home. <laughs> you know, this has been wonderful, George. Yeah, I've enjoyed thank you it so much for sharing your your wisdom, your you know, and your insight and uh, and your heart with us. I enjoyed it immensely, and I look forward to being in the same room with you and with Mina and getting to be with friends again. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. You can catch previous podcast episodes as well as installments of SVWC Now our new series of video conversations at lidhub.com or at the Sun Valley Writers Conference website, svwc.com. Wherever you are, we hope you and your loved ones are staying safe. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shilliday and the Network Studios.